0: Happy New Year. I don't care what Damon says. I'm going to say it again. Happy New Year. Uh, If you would stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 10. A familiar story that uh, if you spent any time in church, you've heard before. You may be a little unfamiliar with the context. I'm going to start off and I'm going to read. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, him being Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way a Levite happened to be going down, um, uh, or in the same way a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spent. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to your word right now. and. Uh, We ask that if we're faced with an impossible standard, something that you ask us to do that seems too much, Father, would you help us uh, not to try to lower the standard? Would you help us to cry out to you for help, Father? So that's what we do right now. We cry out to you for help. We know that no amount of resolve can make us be the people that we want to be. Uh, We need your help to do that. So we pray that you would make us what we're not. It's in Jesus' name we pray. take your seat. Um, good intentions are no match for bad directions. Good intentions mean nothing if you have the wrong directions. The year was 1992. It was 25 years ago. in um, a Chicago family that narrowly escaped a tragedy the year before that involved their baby son um, had made the resolve that what took place the year prior was never going to take place again. But good intentions are no match for bad directions. In the hustle and bustle of trying to get everybody safely to their destination, their son, who narrowly escaped the tragedy a year before, um, stopped in the airport to take care of a tr- trivial matter. His family goes on and he looks up. Uh, he doesn't see his, y'all know where I'm going with this. I'm trying to I try to have a straight face. He He looks up to just see his dad or what he thinks to be his dad. All he sees is the camel skin trench coat. So he walks behind his dad all the way up to his gate, gets into the airplane, um, and he's safe. The good intentions that they had seem like they were good, but good intentions are no match for bad directions. He boards this plane, and his family heads to Miami, and he goes to New York. They were in the right place. He just went through the wrong Door, good intentions, and no match for bad directions. The family, the McAllister family, (laughs) the kid, Kevin McAllister, the movie Home Alone 2, uh, lost in New York. Being in the right place, it doesn't matter if you go in through the wrong door. The family resolved that they weren't going to leave their son behind this year, and they made sure that they all made it to the airport, but that didn't matter. Because he went through the wrong door so they wound up in a different place regardless of how well-intentioned they were. The wrong directions put them in a place that they didn't want to be in. We're getting ready to be at, this, or we're at the start of a new year. And one thing that I know um, is that at the start of every year, uh, you have the best of intentions. You intend on steering your life in a certain direction But by the time we get to the end of the year, how many of y'all ended up at some place in 2017 at the end of the year that you didn't intend to be there at the start of the year? Good intentions are no match for bad directions. And guarding from this drift is a lot harder than just finding yourself on the right plane. Do you know that as a plane flies, if it's off by just one degree, over the course of a flight from L.A. to Chicago, if it's off by one degree, it'll miss its mark by hundreds of miles. Right? It's crazy. I well, said baby. But yeah. So all that this is is as we start off a new year, we know that we need to recalibrate. We know that we started, we hope to, to, to go somewhere. We found ourselves Drifting, And the new year is a great time where we can step back and say, we need to recalibrate. We need to take this time and align our lives and make sure that we're actually going to get to the destination that we want to get to. But the problem is that all of us drift. So we start off a new year, and do you know what we do? We look at all of these things that we want in our lives, and we set goals for all of them. We set goals for our marriage. This year, we're not going to miss a date night. We set goals for the relationships that we're going to be in. This year, we're going to get engaged. We set goals for weight loss. We set goals for our careers, we set goals for all of our lives, and we find ourselves in a place where we're overwhelmed with all of these goals that we're trying to set, and so it's hard to even remember the goals that we set at the end of the year, much less keep all the goals that we set. So what I want to do at the start of the year, what I want to take my time on um, is from God's word not to talk about each one of the goals but to talk about one thing that shapes each of those goals. So we can spend time and talk about five steps to a better marriage, how to advance in your career, or what we can do is take our time and talk about something that impacts all of those things. Think of life like a guitar that you're trying to tune. It's made up of so many strings. But what you really wanna get right is if you're gonna tune that guitar, is you wanna make sure your tuner's right. Because if that tuner is right, then it's gonna help you know how how to fix each of these strings. And so what I want you to know is that uh, the most important thing about you is your faith in God. The relationship that you have with God. And if that's right, Then it'll help us to tune all the rest of those things. But if that's not right, set all the goals that you want. But even if you meet those goals, it's not going to give you what you ultimately want, peace with God. So the bad news is this, that a few degrees, small changes that you don't do can take you way off course. But the good news is that same truth works in reverse that it may not be that you need to make these major changes in your life this year. It may be that there are very small things that you need to tweak just to steer your, your life a few degrees over to put you on the right path. Something very small can change a whole lot. Something minor, as minor as a definition. And that's where we find ourselves today. The Good Samaritan is a story parable that Christ teaches that hinges on a definition so turn with me to Luke chapter 10 and I'm going to set a little bit of context for the next five weeks we're going to spend our time in in the gospel of Luke and we're going to bounce around Um, we're going to start off our year by hearing directly from Jesus as he spends his time trying to recalibrate our lives Uh, The Gospel of Luke was written by a man named Luke. Um, If Luke, if the Gospel of Luke was a CD, then it would be the first disc of a two-disc set, right? Luke writes both Luke and Acts, and his goal is to create an apologetic for Christianity. While so many other books of the Bible are written to the church or directly for the church, Luke uh, initially writes his book. For for this one guy by the name of Theophilus, Um, he's likely a high Roman official who came to faith. And Luke is trying to help him understand Christianity because this is a guy that came to faith at a time where it was unpopular to be a Christian. He came to faith at a time where culture um, had very harsh words to say about Christianity. And so what Luke does is he writes this book so that this guy can have an accurate picture of what Christianity is like primarily by zeroing in on what Jesus is like. So if you're here and you're new to church, uh, you have I've been spent much time in church, Luke would be a great place for you to start. Uh, just take some time through the course of this next month. Start from the beginning and read and just hear what Luke has to say about the gospel. Hear what Luke has to say about Christianity. In Luke 10, um, Jesus is at a place where he sends off the 12 disciples um, or, or he sends off a crew of guys and he tells them to go and do all of this work. Heal folks, cast out demons and all of this stuff. So they go and they come back having accomplished everything that Jesus set them out to do and they come back cheering because they said, it worked. We set out to do what you called us to do, and we accomplished a whole lot. And Jesus recalibrates them and tells them this. Look at verse 20. He says this, however, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. To a group of folks that were set out intent on accomplishing a whole bunch Jesus recalibrates and he tells them this. The most important thing about you is not your achievements. It's your status with God. Most important thing about you is not what you do or how well you've done it. The most important thing is our adoption as God's kids. That's what we should rejoice in. This is what our faith is all about, being brought into God's family, not just meeting all of these goals. This is going to be the tuner that He's going to use. This is how He's going to recalibrate our lives. And right after that, we find ourselves in this story. We're just going to walk through this verse by verse, take some time, and talk about it. It starts off verse 25. It says this Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? The very first thing that we have to know is it's important. This is not a story about self-improvement. The Good Samaritan is often couched as uh, what do I need to do to be a better person? The context of this story is not some guy saying what do I have to do to be better? This is a story about salvation. What he's saying is What do I have to do to be saved? This is more than a resolution. This is somebody saying, what is the baseline of this thing called Christianity? What is ground zero? What must I do to inherit eternal life? 26. What is written in the law, he asked them, How do you interpret it? Jesus um, turns it back on his head because it's very clear from him uh, that this guy is not asking a genuine question. He's really trying to make a statement. Y'all ever been in class with some somebody like that that they ask questions and you're like, "You ain't really asking a question. You're trying to make a statement." So what Christ does is he says, "Well, what do you? How do you read the law?" And then here with this. Guy says, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this, you've answered correctly. He told them, do this and you will live. The very first thing is, the answer that he gives here is phenomenal. Because in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. So this is a guy that is well taught or brilliant because he's taken the Old Testament and he's summarized it in a tweet. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That the whole law hangs on that. What does it mean to be a Christian at the baseline. Christians love God and Christians are great neighbors. Jesus says this. One, you're right, but look at the next thing that he says. He says do this and you will live. What I love about Jesus is that he's never content with people just knowing he wants them to do. He's never content just with people believing He wants them to behave somewhere. Jesus is not intent on merely satisfying your curiosity. He's constantly going to command. He's not just trying to answer trivial questions. He's trying to speak in such a way to change all of our lives. And Jesus says to him, do this and you will live. Verse 28 or 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want to stop right here and just help y'all grasp what's being said here. Um, Questions uh, usually stem from one one or two places, one of two places. Ignorance, I don't know what this is, or... Arrogance. I can't believe that you would ask me to do this. It's the difference in be, between. You know, there's times when I was kid, uh, when I was a kid, that my mom would 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 leave the house, um, and she would say, um, "I expect this whole house to be clean when I get home." And so there's sometimes I'd say, um, "So you mean to tell me I have to clean up the whole house by myself?" And then there's sometimes I'd say. So you mean to tell me I have to clean up the whole house by myself? It's the same words, but they're two completely different questions. One says, no, really, you're going to leave me by myself? There's nobody else that has to help? Her. And she's like, oh, nah. Uh, there's five of y'all. Y'all all have to clean. Or if I'd suck my teeth and say, well, you mean I have to clean up this house all by myself? Uh, she would re- respond with a little more force. Um with that one so what this could be is it could be this 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 guy saying who's my neighbor I've never heard of this concept of a neighbor before Jesus would you please explain to me who that is so that I can love him or it's him saying as a lawyer or an expert in the law let me know who my neighbor is so that I know who my neighbor isn't. Because if I know who's not one, then I don't have to do that. I, I don't have to love him. Which one is it? I think it's the latter for two reasons. I think that he asks this out of arrogance, and here's why I think that. Uh, one, because He just sums up this law, right, that that the whole law, what we have to do to inherit eternal life is this, that you have to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all of your strength. So this is complete, utter, and absolute devotion to God and love your neighbor as yourself. And his follow-up question completely skips over the obligation that he has to God as if he's already doing a good enough job. And then when he gets to asking about the neighbor, he doesn't ask, how should I love him? But he says, who is he? And two, I think that he does this because the text says right here, wanting to justify himself. Luke leads us in uh, to that. Um, In a book called The New Jim Crow, uh, I'm going to read you a little quote from this, and it'll. I just really want us to grasp what's being done here so that we don't say, ooh, what a bad guy this is, uh, but so that we say, ouch, I think I tend to do the same thing sometimes. Um, in a book, The New Jim Crow, it uh, says this. Uh, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than which. Uh, than with the language we use to justify it. We have we haven't ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. And and so her point is this that in a world that's colorblind and supposedly has advanced past all of the ills that what they've done, um, it's not appropriate to discriminate, to exclude, to hate people based on their race. So what she says is that uh, we don't. Instead of race, what we do is uh, we use the criminal justice system because if we can color somebody a criminal, then we're justified in the way that we discriminate. Hate. Don't give them jobs. Don't give them the right to vote. Don't give them housing. And so her main thing in this book is that racism hasn't We haven't gotten rid of racism. We've remixed it. We've just used this word and changed this word so that we uh, remove ourselves from the obligation to love a certain type of person. And this is what he's trying to do here. He's trying to color somebody, a non-neighbor, so that he can take the standard of God, drop it down, and say, well, I meet that criteria. He's trying to, justify himself and I only bring that up uh, because I think that you and I are guilty of the same thing I think we're prone to make the same mistake of coloring folks non-neighbors whether intentionally or inadvertently Um, if you're in here and you're in this room and you've grown up in a privileged background one of the ways that this inadvertently takes place Uh, is that by and large in the world that we live in, uh, the path that has been carved out for you in life has made it a very real possibility that it's very easy for you to ignore or to be ignorant of all the things that go on in the world. Not saying that you're wrong for this, but just saying all of us that have any type of privilege or ignorant about things that go on in the world. So whether it's white privilege and you've grown up here in the world, or whether you're African American and you've grown up here in the States, uh, there's nothing like leaving the country for the first time and saying, oh, this is what things look like out there. Some of us are tempted to color people non-nabbers because we're privileged and we don't have to think. Some of us are tempted to color people non-neighbors because we've been persecuted and oppressed and we've been frustrated by what they've done to us and so we're not ignorant of their plight, we just choose to ignore. There's some of us in here that have been so hurt by things that have gone on in our world, whether it's racism or injustice, that we look at the perpetrators of that And we have resolved in our heart, because of the wrong that they've done, I don't care if they need help. I don't care if they need compassion. I don't care if they need somebody else to guide them along. I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. And because of that, I'm free not to act like a Christian towards this group. And then there's some of us as well um, here too that, Uh, not in a bad way, but can take a good truth and move that to for, especially here at this church, as we talk about um, the responsibility that we have as being church members, that God has called us to to love all, Uh, but God has called those of us that are a part of a church to have a specific type of love for people that are a part of our same church, and it's easy for us to inadvertently use this to meet the needs of those that are in here and ignore the needs of people that aren't a part of this group. All of those are ways that you and I um, can tend to ask this same question. Who's my neighbor? How do you know if you've fallen prey to this? One easy way is to um, look at your dinner table. The people that you invite over to eat meals with you or to spend time with you. How diverse is that group? How similar is that group? Look at your inbox on your text messages. Whose text do you respond to when they need help? And whose don't you respond to when they need help? Look at your friendships. Look at the people that you're willing to forgive and those that you're not. Look at the people who, uh, because of how you view them, they can never do anything right. Think of how. How many people that you overlook their kindness and then think of the folks who you make excuses for their cruelty. Here's what I want you to see. Um, Even if God's truth is in our head, a self-righteous heart will only use that information as ammunition to rebel against God. So I want you to know this. You have questions about God? Uh, Bring your questions about God to Jesus. Jesus never turns away anybody for asking a question. The welcome mat is at the front door. The porch light is on. He's saying, come in and ask questions. But Jesus says, take your soiled shoes of self righteousness and check those at the door. Don't walk through my house muddying up my carpet with your self righteousness. So Jesus is going to see this guy who wants to take the standard of God, a high standard, and instead of pleading for help, he's trying to justify himself. And Jesus is going to say, all right, if this is the game that we're going to play, let's play. And so what he does is he tells a parable. Um, I thought the best way to think of a parable um, is think of a parable like a subtweet. I don't know what a subtweet is, right? Like when, like say you're in a fight with somebody and they don't forgive you, Uh, folks subtweet and says, man, I can't believe that there's some people out there that don't forgive anybody. Right. So, what a subtweet is is it's not just a tweet that comes out of nowhere. It's a message that's aimed at a specific context. The difference between a parable and a subtweet is that a subtweet is usually done out of cowardice, but a parable is Jesus is going to say at the end, oh no 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 no. I want you to know this is all about you, but I'm just going to give it in a story because. Pictures are remembered more than propositions. Stories are remembered long after sermons are forgotten. And so in the wisdom of Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to give a parable, and it's got this divine truth wrapped up in it. So to an expert in the law who would try to justify the reasons why he doesn't have to love somebody else for folks like you and me who do this intentionally or inadvertently, Jesus gives us this story for a man that asks uh, about the definition of a neighbor. And he says this, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and they fled, leaving him half dead. This is a road that, um, uh, this was a place where people that, wanted to rob, uh, they loved this road because it was this this dark road that wound down. Um, there were no street lights on this road, so it got really dark. You couldn't get a cell phone uh, reception there on, on this road, and uh, so folks would kind of hang off in the cut, and what they would do was these guys came down. Uh, they, they camel-jacked them, y'all. Got them bad, left them half dead, And Jesus, being a master storyteller, says this, look. So so he's like, yo, there's this guy that's dead, and, and then he says this. And then a priest, look at this, somebody that's an expert in the law, just so happens to come by at the time that this guy got jacked, and he sees him, right? So it's not like he walks by and he misses him. This priest, an expert in the law, somebody that knows what it means to love God, somebody that looks like a good Christian, somebody that's paid. A priest uh, in Exodus, a, a, a priest helped to give God's law, and one of the things that was a part of this law that they knew was this. If somebody's donkey that you don't like, is in trouble, you have a moral obligation to help that donkey. That's in the law. So this is a guy that knows that. There's a guy on the side of the road, he sees him, and he walks by. All right, maybe he was busy, maybe he had something something to do, and then Christ goes on and says this. Look, look, Look at this. In the same way, a Levite, When he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Basically what he's saying is it's as if another guy that was in service of the church that made his living off of obedience to God's law looks at this man and sees a man half dead on the side of the road and sees footprints in the sand of the priest that walked by and chooses to walk in the steps of those footprints and goes by. You have these two people who know all of God's law, but they don't do it. Now, why don't they? There's so many folks that have said, well, they're a priest and they couldn't touch anything that's dead. Or maybe they were in a rush. Maybe maybe there was a whole lot that they had to do. Jesus doesn't waste time talking about why they didn't go because it doesn't matter. What he's trying to bring up is, um, uh, I don't care what you say you believe. Uh, I look at how you behave and your behavior tells me what you believe. A faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. Jesus is saying it's inconsequential the reason why these guys didn't stop off and help. Their words aren't important. It was their work. So a question that I just have to ask you, just in light of this, I mean, it's so clear. Uh, how many needs did you pass by on your way to church this morning? Last week, on your way home from church, uh, how many needs did you pass by? How many people on the side of the road that said that they needed something? Did you pass by without even a thought? I'm not trying to do right now is to ask why I just want you to count and think of how many is it hard to count because we've gotten so accustomed to it that it's as if we don't even see them anymore? I think Jesus brings up these examples of these two guys to help us see your it's so much easier to look like a Christian than to actually live like one. Titles, however fancy and descriptive they may be, uh, they mean absolutely nothing. Um I've played ball my whole life, and one of the things that you find, like when you go to a gym and play ball, uh, that is you're getting ready to pick teams. um, There's certain guys that you want to stay away from. You don't want to pick them on your team, Um, and they are the guys that come in that from head to toe have the best gear, right? There's certain guys that come in, and you know they come in. They got you know the headbands, the sports goggles, the compression sleeves, the Joint Kobe wore on his finger, they got the nice shorts, they got a knee brace, the socks pulled all the way up, the best shoes with no creases in it. Um, And you walk in and you say, man, uh, you have all of what looks like makes a good basketball player. And then you pick them up on your team and you find out, oh, uh, they have all of that except for um, talent and skill. Which is actually the most important thing if you're going to pick up somebody to play ball on your team. And Jesus is saying, look, 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 y'all. I just want us all to see, just hear me right now. Especially in the age of social media where everybody is able to espouse their beliefs in very articulate ways. Be very careful about who you look to as heroes and models. Um, it is easy to talk about what you believe. Um, it's very difficult to behave what you believe. So let's just kind of make this a rule of thumb. I'm going to choose who I look up to based on how they behave what they believe, not how they spout off what they believe. So Jesus brings up these guys and shows them, Yo, they just passed by. And then he goes on and says this, look, but one of the most important words in your Bible, it is a contrast, it sets apart all of what took place before, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, look, he had something that they didn't have, so he did something that they didn't do. He had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? It's an obvious question, the one who showed him mercy. Then he said, go and do likewise. Here's what I want you to see. Um, Again, a little bit of context. We're going to wrap this up soon. But the Samaritan, um, this is somebody that the crowd would have looked at as their opposite. right? So the moral of this, of what we read here, um, is don't read this story and put yourself in the role of the Samaritan. That's not the way to read. Um, In the role of the Samaritan, read this story and put put in that place your opposite. So if Jesus told this story, September the 12th of 2001, it likely would have been the story um, of the good Taliban member. If Jesus told this story in the United States in a predominantly white church, this would probably be the story of the good Negro. If Jesus told this story um, in a predominantly African American or Democratic church in 2016, this would be the story of the good guy with a Make America Great Again hat. I just want y'all to see, like, what you want to look at is Jesus' contrast. These people that are experts in the law with somebody that this group would view as their opposite. Somebody that has done wrong to them in some way that they don't have an obligation to come and serve. And what he does is he says that this person did what they didn't do because he had something that they didn't have. And that thing that he had was compassion. Compassion is exposed. Not just is compassion exposed, Compassion is expressed in this story. And here's what I want you to see. Compassion um, is not just words. Compassion expresses itself concretely in both time and money. Compassion is being so burdened by some wrong that has gone on that it gives of itself completely. Not just is it expressed, but here's what I really want want y'all to see. Compassion is expensive and it is extensive. It extends for a long time. Just look at the details of what takes place here. That this man, not knowing anything about this guy that's in trouble, looks at him and he bandages his wounds. Compassion is messy if you want to be clean and maintain a pristine outward look, then you're never going to get into anybody else's mess. And compassion's messy. He bandages up this guy's womb. Compassion is costly. Oil and wine. People just didn't walk around and take trips with extra stuff, right? We can take extra because we have cars and we can just loaded in the back, but people are walking and carrying things all themselves so they don't take more than what they absolutely need. He gives of himself. It's sacrificial. He gets off of his donkey and puts this guy on it and runs with it. Compassion is inconvenient. Not only does he help this guy, but he takes out an entire day from his journey, spends the night with this guy, and then gets up. It's it's financially draining. Not only does he help him out, but he leaves his Amex with the innkeeper and says, hey, charge anything else that this guy needs. Compassion is extensive. It takes time. Compassion is not just about you meeting needs that are right in front of you. It's about you anticipating potential needs and going out of your way to meet those needs. This Samaritan not only makes a detour on his way to where he's going, but he makes a plan to detour on his way back. Here's what I want to bring up in all of that. When we talk about this concept of compassion, um, I want you to get out of your head this notion that being compassionate is not going to cost you anything. I want you to get out of your head the notion that being compassionate to somebody in need is convenient. That's where things really go wrong. We spend so much time as a church trying to make our expression of Christianity convenient so that it's nice and neat and it can fit in people's back pockets to where they can go on and resolve to do whatever they want with their whole years and just give God two days per week. But compassion doesn't work like that. It's costly. It is going to cost you something. If you are running towards convenience in this next year, I want you to know you're actually running away from showing compassion to anybody because compassion is not convenient. It's costly. And once we get it out of our head that it's gonna be convenient and try to find the best way to be compassionate to people, then you and I have to wrestle with the real question that goes on inside of our heart. Here's the real question. The real question is not if showing compassion is costly. It is. The real question that you and I have to work through is, is it worth it? Do we think that it's worth it? Do I think that it's worth being detoured from the goals that I've set? Do I think it's worth being inconvenienced from the things that I do to help somebody out that I don't know Or to help somebody out that I dislike. And Here's the problem with our hearts, y'all. I think our standard of worth, if it's worth it, often has to do with us, our comfort, our well-being, our finances, how we feel. And we don't want to go out of our way to do anything that will inconvenience us. Here's a definition of worship, to treat someone or something with the reverence and adoration appropriate to God himself. The concept of a God is that there's somebody out there that's really important, and what makes the God of the Bible um, so beautiful is that God is so much more important and worthy than we are that he doesn't have to concern himself with our problems. It is an inconvenience to his agenda to concern himself with what goes on inside of us, but he does. And when we put ourselves in a place where we are unwilling to inconvenience ourselves, to show compassion, to meet the needs of anybody else. Do you know what we do? We put ourselves on a throne. I worship myself when I fail to show compassion to image bearers of the God that I should worship. And what Jesus does is he so links our concern for others with our love for God that we quickly find out it is impossible to live a life entirely consumed with what I want and claim to be someone that is an inheritor of eternal life. Those things just don't go together. And that's what he lays out here. Here's the main point of all of this, of this story. Here's what makes somebody a neighbor. It's not closeness. It's not context. It's not how much they are like you. It's not how much they think like you politically. Um, Compassion, not closeness is what makes somebody a neighbor. Compassion that instead of asking who is my neighbor, the question is, am I a good one? Here's a great diagnostic question for all of us. When was the last time you went out of your way to serve somebody that you didn't know? When was the last time that you took all your plans and agendas and New Year's resolutions and you put them on hold because there was somebody that crossed your path that needed help that you said, I don't know them. But God in his providence has worked it to where they cross my path. These things can wait. Let me go out of my way to help them. It's much easier to go out of our way to avoid people. You ever been in the mall um, and you know like there's certain kiosks where the people that sell the soap are super aggressive. And so when you go in, you already know. I know I just want to go to Dillard's, but I'm going to take the long way all the way around the whole joint so that I don't have to walk through them. How easy is it for us to know that there are paths where people actually need our help? But we take the long way around. We choose the exits that we come off the freeway because we know that at the one joint that there's going to be somebody there. What Jesus tells to all of us is, yo. Don't spend your time trying to decipher who you need to be compassionate to. He, here's just a rule of thumb anybody that comes across your path that is in need is your neighbor and is worthy of your compassion regardless of how much merit they present. This guy's so convicted. Jesus at the end says this. Which of these three proved to be a a neighbor? Look, he's so mad and he's filled with so much contempt that he can't even say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed him mercy. It's the equivalent to folks nowadays that are so frustrated with President Trump that they won't use his name, but they'll call him 45. It's this guy here saying, the one who showed him mercy. And what Jesus does at the end, once again, he's not here to satisfy your curiosity. He's the Lord Jesus here to command you toward what God has said to do. And he says, you go right here, look, and do the same. The ESV will translate this word likewise. And so what you see in this text here, is in the same way that the Levite followed in the exact footsteps of the priest, what he's saying is, for all those that want to inherit eternal life, for all those that want to know what it means to really love your neighbor, Jesus is saying, you go and do the exact same thing. Follow in the exact same footprints of the Samaritan. And do you know what that should lead you and I to do? Is to say one word. Help. That, my friends, is an impossible standard. Who, if anybody, could say I've earned eternal life because I've loved God in that same way and I've loved everybody that's come across with that same need. We can't. We know that we've We've fallen way short. We know that as much as we resolve and have the greatest of intentions to do that this year, we know that come the end of the year we're going to look back and say, I drifted. So here's the first thing that we do, y'all. We pray for compassion. We pray for God to give us that which we don't have. And here's what I love about the Lord Jesus is that he modeled this and he made himself a test case and then he died for us and he rose and has filled us with his spirit so that we can do the same thing. There are no two more opposite beings. No people that fall on the opposite side of the spectrum of perfection and imperfection than God himself and us God is self sufficient we're deficient God is independent we're dependent God's perfect we're imperfect Do you know what God did in the person of Jesus? Jesus made himself our neighbor. Jesus obligated himself To the needs of people that were on the side of the road that couldn't do anything to lift themselves up and to walk in the path that God would have them. And what Jesus did was, as our neighbor, he showed us the greatest compassion. And he didn't just give of himself, but he gave his whole self. He died to save all of us from our sins. And he raised from the dead, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice. And now he charges you and I to go out and live in the impossible standard that's laid out for us. But that you and I shouldn't feel like we have to do this on our own. He said that he would be with us. And so as we pray for compassion, what we do is we pray that God would work in our hearts that which is foreign to our hearts. We pray that instead of being consumed with worship for ourselves and convenience, that we would be consumed with worship for God. For God, a self-righteous heart wants to have limits and set the bounds on what God can do. A self-righteous heart wants to look for the contract that God lays out and read all of the fine print before we actually sign our name on the line. But what Jesus is saying, you sign your name on the line and trust me that everything that I put into this contract will be for your good. A self-righteous heart looks for limits to the devotion that we have to give to God. A transformed heart full of compassion looks and sees all the needs that come our way and looks and sees limitless opportunities for us to show just how compassionate our God was to us. Not by the way that we espouse what we believe, but by the way that we behave. So I say pray for a compassion that if you find yourself or if you find a friend in this same place where it's pretty clear that they're not compassionate like this and self-centered and gripped, then don't use this text to beat them over the head with it. Use your hand to lift them up and to pray that God would give them that same compassion. Here's the beautiful thing about prayer. Um, you don't need somebody's consent to pray for them, and God doesn't need their consent to change them. Pray. Two, um, link your prayers with action. Um, it's, it's been said this, uh, that, that a goal without a plan um, is a wish. Um, so as we start to talk about this, Next year, and all the things that, that we feel like we want to do with our lives, ask yourself, what is my plan to live a life of compassion? Wednesday night prayers are a great way. Um, it's, it's a time where we come as a church, we hear about what God's do, doing. We pray that God would resource as a church to do all of those things, and it's a great chance for us to sign on. Um, me tell you this one thing right quick um, if you spend all your money on yourself it's going to be incredibly hard to give any of it away savings goals that we make to save um, are not just for our needs but they're for the needs of people the Bible commands generosity is a good thing to pry our fingers off of what we have to correct the notion that we have that we lose everything if we give everything. Jesus' life was a demonstration that the way that we gain everything is by giving everything. And so what I'm not saying is giving just in the context of a church. That's part of it. The Levite and the priest gave in church I'm concerned with when you leave here, I don't want you to leave your religion inside of the church in our buckets. Give, but as you go out there and needs come across your way, make a plan for how it is that you're going to give. We do this every day in the way that we choose to react. And we do this every year when we sit down and write down all the resolutions that we make for the year the greatest ways to ensure that you and I can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the year is to make the kind of resolutions that God is happy to invest in. What's your plan to serve? One great thing to do would be to sit down with your, your spouse and say hey, with whatever funds we have, what is our plan to use this to show the same compassion that God has shown to us so that when we actually tell people about our faith, they believe us because of how we've behaved. Lastly, um, make room for interruptions. One thing that's more valuable than our money is our time. And if you overschedule your life, especially in this year, the top of the earth, all the goals, with all the things that you want to do, you'll find yourself constantly ripping and running and seeing half dead people on the side of the street as an inconvenience to a place that you have to go. No need that God brings on, on our pathway is an inconvenience. Granted, we can't meet all of the needs, and that's the blessing of being a part of a church, is that when there are needs that we're overwhelmed and we can't meet ourselves, We have a body of folks that we can share that need with. But we'll pass by so many if we structure our days to a point where we have no margin to be open to the interruptions that God places our way. As I close, I just want y'all to hear this. Um, Don't be afraid to revisit and revise some of the resolutions that you've already made. We're not even a weekend. Nobody's going to judge you. Take a step back. Be reminded that what determines a neighbor is not just closeness, but it's our compassion. The earth is better off because Jesus decided to move in and make himself our neighbor. It's better because even when the people of earth evicted him, he had such an impact on the people that he spent time with that his way of life carried on. Is your street a better street because of your presence there? Is your neighborhood a better place because of your presence there? It can be. It should be. Pray for compassion. Link your prayers with action. Make a plan. And lastly, be open to the interruptions that God sends. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again. uh, Grateful for the instruction that we find in your word, Father. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us a high standard that actually produces change in the world. And thank you for empowering us, Father, to... uh, meet that high standard, to live in light of the fact that Christ has met it for us. Uh, Lord, I pray if there's any of us that are holding on to convenience, that you would remind us that that's never been the pathway to joy. Help us to be a church full of people that are full of your compassion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.